and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest, my guest, oh, sorry, I'm going to start over there because I botched the beginning there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Anthony Michael Kreiss. Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Chicago Kent College of Law. We will discuss his article, Dead Hand Vogue, which will be published in the University of Richmond Law Review. So welcome to the show, Anthony. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's it's so great to have repeat guests. You know, the show's coming up on the one-year anniversary pretty soon, and it's nice to have people like you coming back to do second episodes and kind of see, you know, different kinds of work that you're doing. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, congrats on on the podcast success. It's it's just so great to to see so many um, you know, academics and students and practitioners have access to the things that we're doing. You know, so um, you know, I think I think it's really remarkable how how much success you've had with it. With that. Thank you, thank you. It's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun. So this paper has been seeing a lot of success as well. Um, among other things, it's like one of the best law review article titles I've seen in a long time. <laughs> and and I want to talk about to you about that a little bit after listeners have a sense of what you're actually doing substantively substantively in in the paper. Um but you know th- the paper really is about the sort of history of the conceptualization of Title VII employment discrimination law in relation to LGBTQ individuals. But I was wondering if as a way of kind of introducing the paper, you could talk a little bit about how courts usually conceptualize Title VII in relation to identifying and remedying employment discrimination. Yeah. So um, I'll start with you know the, the main core part of Title VII, which is Section 703A1. And, and that part of Title VII says that it's unlawful for an employer to discriminate against any individual because of such individuals, race, color, sex, or national origin. Um, and so there's a couple of things that are important there, right? The first is, is being any individual. And the second thing are the different kinds of, of reasons employers are barred from using as a general matter um, in employment decisions. So the, the issue here, and this is an issue that we see uh, kind of the constitutionalization or the, the uh, I would say the invasion of con law into Title VII doctrine um, is that these, the things that are protected under Title VII are characteristics or traits. But a lot of times people will talk about it as protected classes. Um, and that doesn't really get to the heart of what Title VII really does because you know, Title VII does much more than protect against ontological discrimination, right? So it's not just... Uh, for example, we we don't allow companies to say, well, we will hire um, you know men but not women, or we will ha- hire people of this particular faith but no others, right? We 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 construct Title VII and courts construct Title VII differently, so so they look at the right the what traits uh, may have come into an employer's decision making calculus. So, for example, um, mothers with with young children. Um, 
if an employer discriminates against mothers with young children because the employer has some background assumption that uh, women with kids, particularly those in, you know, we'll say preschool age or elementary school age, um, you won't be dedicated to the job or, or will be, you know, kind of absentee employees. Um, that kind of stereotyping is unlawful because they took uh, that employee sex into account. And, and so you can have unlawful forms of discrimination that only impact subsets of groups. So, right, in this instance, women, not all women, but women with children, right? So, so the difference here is that right, a, a woman's uh, or a female employee has been sex stereotyped because she's a mother, and that would be an unlawful form of discrimination. So, so in, in, in essence, right, title, the way Title VII works, right, is it protects individuals whenever a protected trait is unlawfully considered in an employment decision. Mm-hmm. So if I understand it correctly, then it's like we sort of talk about Title VII anti-discrimination law in relation to classes, but in actuality, with respect to most quote-unquote classes of of people, the courts actually look to traits that are specific or potentially specific to individuals rather than traits that are uniform to the class itself. And if that trait is in some way related to or um, tied to the category that is prohibited to be discriminated against, then that's enough for discrimination. In other words, they're, they're looking to what individuals are like rather than just to the limited kind of class as a whole. That's right. So so in, in the same kind of vein as the women with children, um, if, it, if an employer felt like a man who was a primary caregiver um, wasn't worthy of employment because the employer had some you know vision of of men being less right less manly or less um, you know reliable of a potential employee because they are you know uh, the primary caregiver of children right it's the same thing if you're taking the trait into account and then t- making an adverse employment decision uh, because of that trait, that's unlawful. So you're exactly right. Okay. Okay. So how is it then that courts have conceptualized or applied Title VII differently with respect to LGBTQ individuals? Yeah. So, so you know what? It might be helpful um, to, to just start on why I was thinking about this issue. Um, because, you know, I've thought about these cases for a long time and I've written about them and I've taught them. Um, and just thinking of, you know, just as they marinated with me, um, I thought there was a few things that always stuck out. Um, there always seemed to be very little analysis in these early cases where LGBTQ workers said that sex discrimination, uh, the, the prohibition of sex discrimination covered uh, LGBTQ discrimination claims. So in other words, that sexual orientation discrimination is a subset of sex discrimination or gender identity discrimination is a subset of sex discrimination. Um, and these early cases from the mid to late 1970s and throughout the 1980s just had no analysis. So that struck me as interesting. Um, it struck me as interesting that for many of these cases, legislative history was just, was dispositive 
of the analysis. So there was a lot of discussion about why LGBTQ workers weren't covered, uh, you know, cloaked in the idea that, well, Congress in 1964, when the Civil Rights Act was enacted, never intended or thought about or discussed uh, LGBTQ workers, and therefore they must be excluded. And, and that, right, that seems very out of place for most of us thinking about statutory interpretation and construction today, because textualism is right that is the touchstone and the and the primary driver of statutory analysis and we've really kind of grown away um, from from relying on legislative history to the extent that these early cases do um, I also was struck by the fact that a number of judges actually understood the arguments about the relationship relationship between sex discrimination and and LGBTQ discrimination and I think we can talk about that later um, and then the other thing that struck me as just being profoundly strange was that the judges in this period, um, when they were talking about who and who, you know, what groups were and were not protected under Title VII, just collapsed and conflated different types of identities within the LGBTQ community and showed a complete lack of cultural competency. So they would say, well, transgender people you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual people and cross-dressers are all not covered under Title VII, and that's that. Um, which just seems right to us today, where we have so much nuance between gender identity discrimination, different forms of, of sexual orientation discrimination, um, you know, and we see that the LGBTQ community is not, right, a monolithic community, right, there is a lot of diversity within it, that these cases just grouped all these different kinds of, of folks together in in order to keep them out of Title VII's protections. Um, and when I really dug into it, I came to the conclusion that the problem with all these early decisions was a fundamental error that the courts did not recognize. And then the courts just glossed over the idea that Title VII protects individuals and not groups. And that lack of an individualized focus, um, right, where the traits weren't important, but the group identities were, allowed for the legislative history to come in and allowed for the legislative history to dominate the, right, the analysis. And it was all performative um, because it didn't really mean anything, right? They didn't really truly engage in the relationship between sex discrimination and forms of homophobia and transphobia um, that these workers were up against. And so, right, in a sense, um, you had this kind of uh, interactive effect where the, the lack of a focus on the individual amplified the effect and the impact of the legislative history in a way that is so inconsistent with Title VII's text, um, and and I think is it's a it's a right it's a warning sign for the courts, you know, Supreme Court now, um, you know to to avoid this kind of groupthink and and the paper shows how Title VII has actually done a pretty good job in the space of increasingly focusing on the individual, and I think we can you know we'll have lots of time to talk about that. Um, but the more the Title VII has, you know, veered towards individual less, individual level analysis, the more protective it is and the more true it is to the text. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so in your paper, you talk about the concept of a legislative dead hand. And I wonder if you could say a little something about that, what, how, what that means, and how the kind of concept of a legislative dead hand has affected judicial interpretation of Title VII in relation to discrimination against LGBTQ individuals. Yeah, so so the the court's decision from you know, again the, the 1970s and 1980s all are looking at the way or trying to divine uh, the intent and the thought of the legislators in sitting in Congress in 1964, right? And so they're just the, the courts are bent on uh, preserving this idea that because uh, the the individuals who wrote Title VII when the ink dried had no intention and no belief that LGBTQ people were protected or should be protected. Um, you know that that kind of ideological perspective should be right, kind of baked in the cake. Um, so as soon as the ink dried on Title VII, whatever background thoughts legislators had about LGBTQ people, right, are are inextricable from the text at this point, right? So, so it's, it's the, 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 the courts are looking towards what these legislators, you know, are trying to, you know, impose an idea of what these legislators thought about LGBTQ people and saying that, you know, once that, uh, you know, once the legislative, um, drafting was done, which was meant to protect men and women and, and nothing else, um, you know, that, that that's what we have to adhere to. And we really shouldn't be open to evolving understandings of what sex discrimination means. And, and I, you know, I think that the courts really got that wrong, again, because they weren't thinking about the individual level um, and you know uh, a problem here, or they they really weren't taking the individual's claims seriously, um, and and that's a problem, right? Because I when when judges look at LGBTQ uh, employees' discrimination claims on an individual level and take their theories seriously, uh, you know the text really does do the work here, um, and and I think that it's you know pretty obvious to a lot of people now that you cannot disaggregate sex from sexual orientation or, or gender identity. And so if you do discriminate against someone because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, you are, you are doing it, you know, looking at their sex and taking their sex into account. So the text really does drive this and it shouldn't be as the courts in the seventies and eighties would have had it, uh, right. The ideological baggage of the right of the, of Congress in 1964. Yeah. I mean, one thing that really struck me, uh, when I was reading your paper, was there was a way in which there's this kind of slippage between saying, well, Congress wasn't thinking about uh, LGBTQ discrimination in 1964, therefore we don't read it into the statute. But it almost seems like it becomes like like because they weren't thinking about it, they were intentionally excluding it and thereby implicitly endorsing it and therefore – in a weird way, sort of baking in a kind of homophobia into Title VII itself to the extent it – some of these the, – the, the circumstances you describe almost sound as if the courts are saying, well, you know, LGBTQ discrimination is okay. Therefore, even discrimination that is based on traits that are tied to sex is also okay because this is like a categorical exclusion or something. 
Yeah. I, and, you know, it's it's interesting because Title VII today protects a lot more, I suspect, than what the average legislator in 1964 um, signing on to the Civil Rights Act would have thought it protected uh, against. So, right, sexual harassment, the idea that the median legislator sitting in Congress um, understood sexual harassment or understood sexual harassment to be a wrong thing um, and that they were legislating against it strikes me as absurd. Um, But yet, Title VII rightfully protects it because we understand that sex-based harassment and hostile work environments that target people because of their sex, um, right, change the terms and conditions of employment. And so, uh, you know, the fact that Congress didn't think about it doesn't mean that it should be excluded, um, right? Our understanding of the application of of what it means to be discriminated against because of sex has has right for the for the better um, expanded. Um, Congress probably wouldn't have anticipated same sex sexual harassment either being cognizable under Title VII. And and in a sim- similar vein, um, you know, you think about the kinds of discrimination that Congress, um, you know, might have thought about, but you know, weren't explicitly perhaps thinking about. Um, so the, right, Title VII was enacted before Loving versus Virginia. Um, so right at the time that Title VII is you know takes effect, there is no constitutional right uh, as a matter of Supreme Court precedent for interracial couples to marry under state law. Um, yet Title VII today rightfully protects interracial relationships from, um, you know, forms of employment discrimination. So um, I, I, I think that the idea that we need to be, you know, cemented to a, a narrow view of, of what employment discrimination means uh, because of how we predict or, you know, uh, surmise the average legislator uh, in 1964 thought or what they were thinking, I, I think that's, that's wrong. Yeah, well, you know, one thing that struck me too was like, like imagine if Congress had like written into Title VII something along the lines of, yes, all this, but explicitly like discrimination against LBTQ people is is okay, right? I mean, like, I, I feel like a, a a a statute like that or a statutory phrase like that would be. I mean, it's hard to imagine how that would be permissible under kind of current interpret you know under lawrence and and you know and and and, and other uh, you know more recent precedents i mean uh, but it seems as if because it's almost kind of written in to the statute or kind of implied into the statute sub rosa at least some courts are willing to give it a pass simply because it's sort of the discrimination that dare not speak its name as it were yeah. right yeah and and you know the same thing um, I guess the flip side of the, of the same coin, there are a lot of decisions over the last 20 years which have expanded the rights of LGBTQ workers under Title VII. Um, and Congress could have conceivably uh, enacted legislation to reverse those. And and in fact, there has been legislation introduced um, you know, not, not too long ago, I think it was last Congress, to reverse some of the pro-transgender discrimination cases um, and, and right to keep transgender individuals outside of Title VII's protection. So, you know, I, I think statutory interpretation is, you know, it, it's fascinating because, you know, legislative history 
right? What what was the saying? It's like looking into a crowd and seeing your friends, um, <laughs> and, and that's that's basically what this is. And, and it's 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 too e- easy to pick and choose. Um, and and as a you know as someone who has political science training, right? The idea that we can we can ascribe a single motive to you know four four hundred five hundred people voting on a piece of legislation and working on a piece of legislation. Um, you know, that, that's, that's just impossible. So, um, you know, I, I think that that, you know, this adherence to, um, you know, what, you know, what the framers of title seven thought would or would not have been covered is, is, um, you know, it it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, no, I agree. And like from the descriptions you gave in your paper, I couldn't help, but feel like some of the courts sort of interpreting, a sort of carve out or permission for this form of discrimination or almost like projecting onto the 1964 Congress, their own prejudices and sort of finding, as you say, kind of finding them in the past, even though they're really an expression of how they were feeling in the present. Yes. And I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, and so one thing I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit uh, are some of the truly kind of bonkers results that come out of this interpretation. So like, it it seemed almost as if from some of the examples you gave that like this, like anti LGBTQ discrimination by mistake is prohibited, but intentional discrimination is not like, (laughs) how could that be? And how could courts possibly reach that result, which result, which doesn't seem to make any sense. You know, the the mistaken gay, um, as I, I, I think these cases are, you know, the, the one I talk about, um, is, you're right. It's absurd. Um, so, so I'll start with how we, you know, bef- with the basics here. So in 1989, the Supreme court decided a case, um, called Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins. And, and there, and long story short, Ann Hopkins was uh, mistreated because she was perceived as being you know, too masculine, uh, not wearing enough makeup or being a little too, um, you know, a little too rough on the edges. And, um, and so she was denied, a, a, you know, a partnership because of, right, these prescriptive stereotypes, which were uh, essentially requiring her or wanting her to conform to, to a gender role where, you know, women are very feminine. And the court there said, well, these kinds of prescriptive stereotypes are just as unlawful as right descriptive stereotypes. So descriptive stereotypes being right assumptions. So like going back to the mother, you know, mothers with young children, there's an assumption that all mothers with young children are undedicated workers. Um, and that's used to then discriminate against individual employees or potential employees. Prescriptive stereotyping is is just the um, right, it's kind of the individual level policing of of, a, of an employee to broader gender norms. And so after this, there were a lot of transgender discrimination cases which were successful because trans employees were able to say, you know, you're doing the same thing to me as Price Waterhouse did to Ian Hopkins trying to, to police gender norms and gender roles. Um, but the, the weird twist uh, came with the sexual orientation discrimination cases. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, men and women who were lesbian, gay, and bisexual would bring claims, um, and they were successful. 
so long as they showed that it was because of you know similar gender stereotypes typing and you know with prescriptive stereotypes so in other words effeminate men could have a claim and masculine women could have a claim but of course you know the 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 line between discriminating against for example an effeminate man and someone who is you know gay or you know, presumed to be gay a gay man um right these things bleed into one another so but nonetheless, court said, well, because groups, right, the you know, gay men as a group um, are not covered under Title VII, if your claim looks a little too much like anti-gay discrimination and not enough like effeminate male-related discrimination, we know we're going to toss it out. So you get all this kind of, right, it, that that in itself doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, that that should make most people's minds kind of explode. But you get these weird... Uh, you, you get this weird result, um, and I this case um, there was a recent case from from Pennsylvania um, where this woman uh, her supervisor was just awful to her. Um, you know, said that she had a lesbian tattoo and told everyone in the office she was a lesbian. Um, but there really isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that she necessarily thought, you know, by the supervisor thought that the employee was overly masculine. Um, but the court kind of assumes this is the case because why else would she assume that she was a lesbian? Uh, because, surprise, the employee wasn't a lesbian. Um, the, the employee was, in fact, a heterosexual woman married to a man. Um, and so, you know, there's almost kind of this, this default assumption that if a heterosexual is discriminated against because others think, you know, for example, here that a woman, the woman is a lesbian, she must have given off some masculine signs or something. Right. And so she's got a claim the right under under this Pricewaterhouse gender nonconformity prescriptive stereotyping doctrine. But the court in this particular instance with the lesbian tattoo case admits that if she were actually a lesbian, she'd probably be you know, either out right out, out of a remedy altogether or would have a much harder time than what she did. Um, and so you get this, right, this crazy distinction between, you know, people who litigate, it's kind of like if you're litigating while gay, you're in trouble. But if you're litigating the same set of facts, but you're a heterosexual, you'll be okay. And and that just can't be, right? It, you can, it cannot be the case that a you know, someone's group identity um, suddenly removes them from the same protections afforded to someone else because they identify in a particular way. And that's inconsistent with that, the idea, right, that we protect against traits and not protect groups. So so I think these cases are, right, they're just fascinating, but they, they illustrate the point in a really, right, on the nose kind of way. Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, they sort of imply or even like straight out say that discriminating against LGBTQ people on X basis is permissible, but discriminating against heterosexual people on exactly the same basis is not. It's like turning Title VII into like anti-discrimination for straight people, but not for gay. But that's just like, wait, what? Yeah. I mean, in, in, in a way, it almost kind of gives rise to this heteronormative supremacy, right? Like if you're, if it, it, it seeks to, you know, that construction preserves this heteronormative, you know, kind of default rule. Um, 
and it just it just seems very you know it's well it's in, it's logically indefensible um but i think again you're right it highlights that the law can't just keep someone out of its protection simply because they identify in a certain way even if the facts are right in their favor um you know as illustrated by it applying to someone with a different identity it's just um <laughs> it's 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 hard to to really uh, assail even you know in any really more significant way than that because it is so patently absurd i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well so maybe you could talk a little bit from a kind of doctrinal perspective how title 7 the application of title 7 in relation to lgbtq rights would change if there were a kind of doctrinal shift from thinking about this as like a class or group analysis to an individual analysis. In other words, you know, what would be different and what would the law look like if it were conceptualized in that way instead of the way that kind of historically courts have conceptualized it? So the short answer is the law would be very clean. Um, <laughs> which I think judges and lawyers and law professors like. Um, so the the Seventh Circuit in Highly versus Ivy Tech and in the Second Circuit in Zarda versus Altitude Express, and that is the Second Circuit case is the one that's now at the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I, I think put a, put very straightforward arguments as to why sex discrimination includes sexual orientation discriminations. Um, you, you know, the, the simplest way to describe it is you can't, you cannot take someone's sexual orientation into account without taking their sex into account. So if I, you know, if I have an employee named Sarah and I'm totally fine if Sarah is dating Bob. Um, but if, if Sarah is Sean, and Sean is dating Bob, and I'm not okay with that. It's because I've taken uh, Sean's sex into account and Bob's sex into account, and put right. I put it together now and said, "Oh, right, he's in a same-sex relationship, and I don't like that." And I'm taking that now into my employment discri- or my employment decision um, calculus, and therefore, right, that's taking sex into account. You cannot, right? There, there's no way you can really parse the two out from one, one another. And I think that's a very straightforward textualist approach that, right, it, it's no different than uh, any of the other cases that we've talked about so far and how traits are used um, in, in that, you know, in that kind of, right, uh, framework. Mm. Um, now, there, there's a couple other ways. There's a sex stereotyping uh, rationale that says, right, we have an expectation that men uh, should date women and that women should date men. And so if you run afoul of that sex stereotype because you're in a same-sex relationship or you're attracted to people of the same sex, uh, that that is violate, uh, that violates Title VII. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think that's, a, uh, that's probably the harder um, framework to use that for, for, you know, folks on the fence to buy into. But the third one that's important is called associational discrimination. Now, this isn't, I don't think associational discrimination is really all that different than the first very textualist-based approach I, I articulated a few seconds ago. But it's essentially this, that, um, right, that if you discriminate against someone because of, of the, um, you know, of a protected trait of, uh, of the of the person that they're 
right, associating with, that that's unlawful. So for example, um, there's a there's a landmark case called PAR, uh, P-A-R-R, it's from the 11th Circuit from the mid-80s, and uh, you know, Mr. Parr was a white insurance salesman and um, you know, was looking for a job and he was denied the job uh, because he was married to a black woman. And the 11th Circuit made it very clear that that was unlawful race discrimination because even though they had, you know, these, you know, these employer or this insurance company in Georgia uh, presumably had no problem with Mr. Parr because he was white, right? That they, they would really have a problem with him being in an interracial relationship. They still took his race into account as a white man in a relationship with someone who wasn't. And so that, that logic, that framework, is mm. arguably transferable here. That if you take someone's sex into you know their their sex association into account, you're doing the same thing that uh, the that insurance company did to Mr. Parr, and so that is a form of sex discrimination because again you are taking the employee's sex into account while making an employment decision. Um, and again, I, I don't really think that you can disaggregate totally uh, that that associational theory with the, the plain textual theory. Um, they, they work hand in hand. But but I think it is important to illustrate for, for people how that and you know how that kind of analysis should transfer logically over from race discrimination to sex discrimination. And I'll I want to note one quick thing here too. Um, unlike uh, the Constitution, Title VII treats all protected groups equally, right? And I, I, I'm loathe to say groups, but all traits um, are, are protected on the same, you know, footing for the, you know, as a general matter. Um, you know, and that's not like the constitution where we have tiered scrutiny for different kinds of uh, forms of discrimination. Um, and so that, mm. for that reason, right, the race discrimination, the interracial relationship discrimination case should 100% just you know, transpose to the the sex discrimination context, and should do the work here for LGBT um, employees. Mm-hmm. Well, so Anthony, you mentioned that this issue is before the Supreme Court, I believe, in the coming term. I wonder if you could just like reflect a little bit on sort of what you hope and expect to see happen in in those cases. I think those are two <laughs> very different. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I hope that the court recognizes that the text does the work here for, you know, all LGBTQ employees, um, that you cannot take someone's sexual orientation or gender identity into account without also taking their sex into account. And that's, you know, I think that's a straightforward forward application of both the individualist principle of Title VII and the principle that we, Title VII right protects against uh, trait-based discrimination and not not really um, it's not about groups. Um, I I'm always loath to make Supreme Court predictions um, because I'm you know I'm always either wrong or very wrong. Um, but I will say this: I I think that the people on the court to watch, uh, I think Chief Justice Roberts is someone to watch. You know, in, in oral arguments in the marriage cases before he articulated the the sex based discrimination um, analysis and framework that I just talked about, and he mentioned it, uh, you know, kind of sua sponte uh, uh, in oral arguments. 
Um, and so it's obvious that he can he gets the logic of it um, because he's already been thinking about it years in advance, um, you know, well before these Title VII cases were, were percolating in the court. So um, I think he's someone to watch. And I think Justice Kavanaugh is the one to, you know, the second one to watch because I suspect that, um, you know, you could you could get either one of, of them on board, um, you know, or both. Um, the other thing that will be interesting in oral arguments to watch is the division between Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. Um, because they have been so, you know, when they divide or the divisions and, and disagreements between them last term were, were often very stark and sometimes uh, resulted in a number of 5-4 decisions, um, some surprising and some less so. But, um, you know, I, I think it'll, we'll learn a lot more by whatever space there is or is not uh, between them. So, uh, you know, I... I you know, I, I still think um, it's, you know, frankly, I, I would put it at 50-50, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I think that the, the arguments are there. There are a handful of right, two of the justices who I think would be rather inclined to to get these arguments and and buy into them. At the same time, there are dynamics that concern me. Um this is probably more so in the transgender discrimination cases. I mean, ironically, right, the, the transgender cases have been the easier ones for years uh, to make, and and transgender employees have been remarkably successful and uh, you know, under Title VII and state state law. Um, but if but you know the 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 things the hot button issues which really I think are, you know, grotesquely employed, um, you know, where, where some of these amici, for example, talk about what will happen with bathrooms and dress codes and, and right, the safety of, of people and uh, what happens to, you know, women, uh, you know, women's identity, um, you know, women's rights and things like that. You know, there's a lot of kind of all these briefs that just lay out these parades of, of, unsubstantiated horribles um, about what will happen if transgender discrimination claims are cognizable under Title VII. Um, I, I do worry that that all, that those could spook the court. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I hope, I hope that the court realizes though, that because so many States expressly protect transgender employees and because Title VII has done a very good job at doing this for a long time, including and, and frankly, the, there's you know some good equal protection, um, you know, in, in the public employment discrimination context out of the Eleventh Circuit, um, you know that 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 they'll recognize that these are in fact, you know, just um, you know they're they're not real concerns and they're not things that are made out of a you know a for they're they're not positions formed in fact or reality. They're 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 right to as scare tactics. I think. Um, and I hope the court doesn't buy into that because I think that if the court does, the damage will go well beyond whatever Title VII rights are, are shut out from transgender employees because the court is an important institution, I think, uh, for all the griping I do about it, <laughs> I'll admit. Um, you know, I think the, the, the court does project uh, to, to society um, a bigger message about our values. Um, and so I hope that the court 
really takes a strong position um, rejecting these these kinds of, of claims and, and you know assumptions and um, you know baseless arguments um, and does the right thing for all LGBTQ workers but but that, that does that is a particular aspect of of things that concern me and the one other thing I'll say that concerns me because I have a lot of concerns but I'll leave it to one um, right price waterhouse versus Hopkins is a landmark decision that does much more than protect LGBTQ people, although it, although it has done a lot for LGBTQ workers, but it protects all, all men and women um, who might just, uh, you know, feel or, or act or, um, you know, behave slightly differently, um, who, who defy gen- gender norms in, you know, even the slightest of ways. Pricewaterhouse protects everybody. And my concern from a doctrinal perspective is that the court will overturn Price Waterhouse as a way to avoid um, really having to engage in the serious um, implications Price Waterhouse has in you know favoring LGBTQ workers. Right? They could just say, "Well, Price Waterhouse was decided wrongly; we're overturning it, and now all these other cases go away because of that." Um, and yeah, that would harm LGBTQ people, and that would be a disaster for for you know the community. But it would also seriously undermine and harm the rights of every single man and woman who's employed in the United States and is covered by Title VII. Um, and I don't think that that can be emphasized enough. Mm-hmm. So on on a slightly lighter note, yeah. Anthony, um, the title of your paper, "Dead Hand Vogue," it's one of my favorites in quite some time. And I was wondering if in closing, you could like reflect a little bit on that title, sort of how you arrived at it, what you wanted it to accomplish, sort of your use of the term Vogue, which I thought was really kind of like, it it made sense, although I didn't know exactly what it meant. Right. And it was sort of intriguing and enigmatic at the same time. So I wonder if you kind of have some thoughts on titling papers and how to do it effectively as a way of maybe even potentially kind of drawing interest in like initial interest in your work. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because for, well, for a long time, I, I, I always, you know, we, you know, you, if you read all, well, I guess you know, you've have obviously, but folks have, you know, when they read, I'm thinking like, Lawn, uh, lawn fuller and, and you know right these old you know, older older uh, legal academics from the 30s and 40s who had all these very bland titles like the forms and limits of adjudication <laughs> and but I mean those always struck me as okay well I know what that paper is about but all right um, you know and and then there were books that have you know with titles like Bill Eskridge uh, had dishonorable passions, which I just thought was a wonderful uh, title for um, for a book. Um, and, you know, I, I just find titles would be exciting, and and so I, I love coming up with you know new and interesting titles. More so though, when I have symposium piece, right, <laughs> where I need where I'm I'm more drawing people in on a piece that's already been uh, you know set for for publication rather than trying to convince folks to publish it. Um, but but this one, you know, I, I struck me again how performative the analysis was. Uh, you know, and by and the analysis, really a lack of analysis, but how performative 
the the quote unquote analysis using uh, legislative history, right, the dead hand of Congress as a crutch to basically do, I think, what the judges just wanted to do, which was to to exclude LGBTQ people. Um, but I also wanted so so that's where obviously where the dead hand comes in, um, and if. Mm-hmm. To to reference the performative aspect, right? I thought of the Vogue, and um, I, mm-hmm. I don't, I you know, I've, um, I mean, you know, because we've actually the last time we were on the podcast together, we chatted about my piece about um, you know the history of gay rights and and the policing mm-hmm. of the LGBTQ community, um, and I I think that you know I have just uh, whether. I don't know if you've ever seen Paris is Brian. I'm sure you have. Of course. Yeah. yeah many, I, I, I teach it, I teach it in one of my classes. <laughs> you know who I'm talking to. Um, <laughs> you know, I just always been so inspired by the, you know, the folks in the twenties and the thirties and, you know, all the way up through the seventies, eighties and nineties who, um, you know, were, were, were creating a culture of defiance and a culture of resilience. Um, and one of those, right cultural aspects which escaped from from the underground into mainstream society was was right the vogue and so i i think for me it was kind of a gesture to that group of people uh out of respect for all the trials and tribulations they were put through and um kind of in recognition that i see so much of my work standing on you know the shoulders of giants in that sense um, and so it was, you know, in a way it was kind of a, a gesture towards that, um, while at the same time capturing this idea of performative analysis. So I thought it was, you know, it was kind of a, a turn of phrase that I thought was interesting and would draw people in and that actual, that was quite accurate to what the piece was describing and discussing, um, and analyzing. And, you know, if, you know, if you, I think, uh, you know, that was kind of a meaningful thing too for me to to be able to make that uh, point, even if it wasn't necessarily apparent um, from you know from first glance for most folks. Yeah, I mean, I love the way you kind of took the legislative dead hand doctrinal theory and sort of mirrored itself back at itself as a form of, of auto critique yeah. almost, which was, I was really, I, I felt you sort of like working that Vogue metaphor <laughs> yeah. throughout the article. Yeah. Now, I, and, and, you know, like I said, I, I, I mean, any listeners who know my recent pieces, particularly again, the supposing ones, I really just, I love the, the catchy, article titles and there's just something something about it that uh that tickles me so uh so you know so long as i derive joy from it now i'll i'll continue with it to the extent i can well i certainly i certainly encourage it and as always anthony it's been a pleasure having you on the program today Well, well thank you so much for having me
mother's giving up my marriage My father's giving up his son The Holy One is way a woman Loving women when it's said and done Cause we're a woman loving women Sing it loud and long Yeah, we're sisters united It's oh so strong Sappho loved that touch We all love so much And we're all 